We are on Romans 10. Romans 10, 5 to 13. We have been in Romans for quite a while. We're on chapter 10. We've been covering the difficult section of Romans 9 through 11, talking about the relationship between the gospel and Israel, and that sort of, uh, sort of tricky situation because for the most part Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah and so Paul in the letter to the Romans has been dealing with that subject and here in 10 5 to 13 we learn about the simplicity of salvation by faith that salvation comes by believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord I love that because it is so simple It is so simple. Uh, There isn't some lengthy doctrinal statement that you have to study and memorize as there would be in a lot of different religions and philosophy. There aren't some great set of feats or good deeds that you have to accomplish in order to earn your place in heaven, the pillars of a certain religion or a pilgrimage to a certain place. The word is right there in your heart and in your mouth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord, and you will be saved. The creeds of the Christian faith were really statements, confessions about what we believe, who we believe Jesus is and what he has done for us in, on the cross and in the resurrection. Look with me at Romans 10, 5 to 13. We're going to cover a relatively short section, but a very important section. Uh, it's one that you would use often in just talking to someone about what it means to be saved. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him and you will be saved. 10, 5 to 13. We read this. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to its reading, its proclamation, and to its application to our lives. Here's where we're going. For those who like to know a good outline, uh, the big idea here is salvation comes by believing and confessing Jesus as Lord. Five through eight, salvation by law versus salvation by Jesus. Talk about that. Nine through 11, salvation comes by believing and confessing. And then finally, 12 and 13, salvation comes the same way for everyone, for Jew and for Gentile, for everyone. So look first here at 5 through 8, salvation by law versus salvation by Jesus. In one sense, he presents two ways in which the law 
says you can gain righteousness. Now you might say, Pastor Rick, that's wrong, isn't it? What do you mean there's two ways? We'll get, you'll explain what I mean here in just a second. The first is the law seems to clearly say you can gain a righteousness if you obey the law perfectly. Okay? So he writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. The Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah puts forward a standard of righteousness. It puts forward what perfection looks like. And ultimately says, if you do them, if you live by these commandments perfectly, you will live by them. That's one. But he says then there's a different sort of righteousness that we see in the law. Notice these are both from the Old Testament. If you have in your mind this idea that the Old Testament Jews were saved by a law and New Testament Christians are saved by faith, you've misunderstood the Bible. Nobody is saved by law. Nobody is saved by their own righteousness. The only way anyone is saved is by faith. So he quotes again from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy. The first one was from Leviticus 18.5. Then he turns to Deuteronomy. The righteousness based on faith says, Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Now he's speaking here, of course, metaphorically. Uh, those who can attain these great acts of righteousness so much to the point where they reach heaven by their own perfection. That would be, he puts in parentheses, to bring Christ down. As if you could be better than Jesus or at least equal to Jesus, and live a perfect and sinless life? Or who will descend into the abyss? Who is willing to go down into the depths of humility and service like Jesus? That would be to bring Christ up from the dead, if you could claim a perfection based on your own righteousness. But verse 8, he says, What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Simply receive it, by faith, that we talked about this last week, that even in the Torah itself, it assumes we're not going to be able to obey the law perfectly. We will fail. That's why it gives us the sacrificial system, uh, because it recognizes when we fail, when human beings fail, they turn to the sacrificial system to trust that God will provide grace. We're also given multiple examples of people who are sinful Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Moses, all of us are sinful. And, of course, promises of a coming Messiah. So, then, are there really two ways to be saved? Well, theoretically, yes. If someone could live life without sin, (laughs) if someone could live a perfect, sinless, righteous life, then they would have no judgment or no wrath from God upon their life for sin. Uh, The problem is, no one has ever done that, nor will anyone ever do that, except for one the Lord Jesus. And in his perfection, he dies for us and grants us his righteousness. Friends, the law is still important. The law is good. The law is what God gives us. We've talked about this a number of times in Romans. The law provides us what righteousness looks like. And friend, if you don't know what righteousness looks like, you wouldn't really know what unrighteousness looks like. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. He was used to think of the world as an unjust place, and he would say that God must be an unjust God to allow so much injustice in this world until he came to the realization that a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Uh, there had to have been a standard, and where does that standard come from if not from a divine lawgiver? Yes, there's injustice, but to only, to even to understand that means there has to be a standard of righteousness. 
And the law provides that, something we strive for. We seek to do better, but we fail. Uh, The law basically tells us very simply, love God with all of your heart and mind and soul. Simple to understand, not simple to do. And love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone, including myself, who's even come close to obeying that standard. Loving God every day, without fail, with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and loving your neighbor every day as yourself. By the way, this isn't even that controversial. In fact, you find this, this is what morality is, right? Morality, the law is basically universal. It's not as if people didn't understand right and wrong until Moses is, gets sort of the law revealed in the Ten Commandments. This is in the heart of every person. We understand that to do harm to others is evil, to do good to others is good. In fact, every, people sometimes say every religion in the world teaches the same thing. It's not exactly true, but when it comes to morality there is a sort of standard that is pretty much across the board. Now, that changes when it comes to the gospel. Uh, So, for example, the golden rule, right? Everyone knows the golden rule is love your neighbor as yourself. Socrates, who lived before Jesus was born, of course, Jesus is eternal, said, do not do to others that which would anger you if others did it to you. Pretty close, right? The Roman pagan religion said the law imprinted on the hearts of all men is to love the members of society as themselves. African folk religion. This is sort of an analogy, but you can read the same idea of the golden rule. One going to take a pointed stick to pinch a baby bird should first try it on himself to feel how it hurts. Do to others as you would want done to you. Even the major world religions, when it comes to morality, would agree with this. Buddhism, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucianism. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. That's from the Analects. Hinduism. This is the sum of duty. Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Islam. It says in Hadith. Do unto all men as you would wish to have done unto you. And reject for others what you would reject for yourself. Shintoism, the heart of the person before you is a mirror. See there your own form. Taoism, regard your neighbor's gain as your gain and your neighbor's loss as your loss. Jainism, in happiness and suffering and joy and grief, we should regard all creatures as we regard our own self. Even Zoroastrianism, whatever thou dost not approve for thyself, do not approve for anyone else. When thou hast acted in this manner, Thou art righteous. In fact, one writer, Joseph Parker, said the golden rule would reconcile capital and labor, all political contention and uproar, all selfishness and greed. Which is to say, yes, if we lived in a world without sin, it would be perfect, right? Uh, There's not much disagreement here about what the law demands. The problem is that all of us fail to do it. Where Christianity differs radically from world religions is what it says about the gospel. Yes, this is the law, but none of us will be able to do it, and because of that, we need a savior. As the writer of Rock of Ages said, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. If I tried and tried and tried with multiple lifetimes, I will never, ever, ever obey the law. To that we need faith. 
To that we need grace, and that grace comes to us in Christ. In fact, there's a certain pride and arrogance that thinks that we could be righteous on our own. That thinks that we could scale the heights, morally speaking, of Mount Everest, you know, the highest point on earth, or go down into the depths of the Mariana Trench, the lowest place on this planet in the ocean. That we could somehow reach heaven's gates by our own goodness. Or we could serve so that we could stand there in judgment over all hell. To, do, to live with that type of arrogance, it says, is to really recognize Christ as a failure. That you could do what he himself has done. The truth of the matter is the law reveals something about our own hearts. That we can't do this. We need a savior. And God provides that for us and says the word is right there in your mouth and in your heart. Simply believe and trust in him for grace. Isn't it interesting that those who we would say have come the closest, maybe, um, to reaching the heights, the moral heights of life or going down to the depths, are those who would say, be the first to say, we depend on the Lord entirely for grace. Uh, Mother Teresa comes to mind in terms of going to the depths of, of serving there in Calcutta for how many years? Mother Teresa said, humility is truth. Therefore, in all sincerity, we must be able to look up and say, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. By yourself, you can do nothing, have nothing but sin, weakness, and misery. All the gifts of nature and grace you have are from God. Billy Graham, right? One of the great evangelists reaching the heights of evangelizing most of the known world. Billy Graham was asked, what's the first question you're going to ask God when you get to heaven? His answer, why me? Why me, Lord? Why did you choose a farm boy from North Carolina to preach to so many people, to have such a wonderful team of associates, and to have a part in what you were doing in the latter half of the 20th century? Why me? Going back in history, you think of William Carey, great missionary to India, transformed so much of India, reached so many for the gospel. William Carey said this, you have been saying much about Dr. Carey and his work, meaning himself. When I am gone, say nothing about Dr. Carey. Speak about Dr. Carey's Savior. Recognizing his own sin and his need of a Savior. Friends, we will never be able to obey the law of our own goodness. What does it take? It takes faith. Look with me at 9 through 11. 9 through 11, we read this well-known verse here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Notice the connection between confession and faith. Um, that Then you will be saved. And then he's on verse 10, says the same thing but backwards, called a chiastic structure. Uh, basically saying the same thing, but the other way around. What does he say? For with the heart, one believes and is justified, declared righteous. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The reason why, by the way, they have chiastic structures in literature is to make an emphasis in what's in the middle. And what's in the middle of a chiastic structure in this case is you will be saved. How do you get saved? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So simple that a child can understand it. Trust in a Savior who is greater than you and one who has paid the penalty for you. My friends, notice that connection too between belief and confession. 
Now, obviously, by confession, he doesn't mean here someone has to simply mouth these words, right? If you just say the words, Jesus is Lord, you're going to be saved, right? That's certainly not the case. In fact, not everyone can say Jesus is Lord. What about someone who is mute? What about someone who is on their deathbed but really does come to a true and saving faith, right? What if someone who doesn't speak the language but understands the message, The point is not that. In fact, someone who confesses Jesus as Lord but doesn't actually believe it in their heart is a hypocrite. That's what we call someone who confesses what they don't actually believe. But we can also flip that around. Somebody who believes and doesn't confess is a coward. The two must come together. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. To believe it is to confess it to make it known, (laughs) to proclaim it. In fact, as I mentioned, that's what the creeds are. Sometimes people look at the creeds and say, that's sort of dead religion. No, this was God's people saying, what is it that we actually believe and what is it that we make our confession about so the world can hear it? Luke 9, 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said, in my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We confess what we believe. But notice what our confession is. Our confession is not spirituality in general. Right? Actually, most people claim to be spiritual. I don't know if you know that. Uh, Very, very rare is somebody claim to be an atheist. It's not a common belief. Most people say, no, I'm a spiritual person. Uh, In fact, very common today is, I'm spiritual but not religious. Now, if you've heard that terminology before. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in institutions. I'm just a spiritual person. But the confession here is not just to be, in general, spiritual. Uh, the confession here is not even just to believe in God in some general sense. There are multiple monotheistic religions. We just talked about some of them. Judaism, Islam are monotheistic as well. And some people say, I believe in God in some general sense. The confession here isn't even just Jesus in some general sense. There are plenty of different folks who use the word Jesus and mean something very different that we mean as Christians when they use the name Jesus. They may mean, I think Jesus is a great, I had someone tell me before, Jesus is a great guru. He's one of the best spiritual gurus we've ever seen, and we should follow his example. That's not what we're saying about Jesus. If you turn on a lot of uh, the preaching on TBN, you'll hear Jesus is the means to get you wealth and prosperity, (laughs) to make you live a successful life. He's a means to an end. That's not the Jesus we proclaim. Uh, On Netflix right now, there's a show about the FLDS, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. And if you listen to them, they would probably say a lot of the same terminology about Jesus. But the more you listen, you realize they are talking about a very different Jesus. (laughs) Our confession is that Jesus is Lord, that he died for us on the cross, that he rose from the dead in triumph over the grave, that we follow him and trust in him. You know, in some ways, it's easy for us to confess that we believe in Jesus. It's, there's not a lot to be lost, right? If you, if you walk to, over to your friends who maybe don't know or family members, you say, I, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. They'll probably just look at you and say, okay. <laughs> there's not a, a huge loss to that. 
Uh, that isn't true for many around the world. And that's becoming more and more so here. But to believe something is not always the same as to be willing to confess it. Sometimes that means your livelihood or even your life is at stake. Uh, Tommy Walker Ministries tells the story of the, the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Noxeng was a man from the Garo tribe of Assam who in the late 1800s, him and his family received the Lord Jesus. They were threatened by their chief to deny their faith in Jesus or face death. Noxeng replied, I have decided to follow Jesus. With these words, his family was killed in front of him. Then his own life was threatened by the chief, and Noxeng's response was, Though no one joins me, still I will follow. The cross before me and the world behind me. No turning back. He was then killed. And in a shocking turn of events, the chief was so moved by this demonstration of faith that he himself became a believer in the Lord Jesus. And so we get the lyrics of the word to the song, I have decided to follow Jesus, along with his faith came his confession. There's a wonderful brother in a country in the 1040 window who often joins us for prayer during the week. Many of you guys know who I'm referring to. Who said when he became a Christian, his father said, if you don't denounce Christ, then you're no longer my son and you have no inheritance from me. And he told his father, I cannot deny what I believe. And he lost his father and his family that day. We believe in our heart and we confess it. And salvation comes the same way for everyone. There are not two standards here. There's only one. Look at verses 12 to 13. Salvation comes the same way for everyone. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So he's bringing it back to this primary topic, his primary subject in 9 through 11, that the gospel is for everyone. Anyone can simply believe and be saved. But notice how he describes this gospel. Uh, the same Lord is Lord of all. There's one God and he's in control of everyone. He's in sovereign over all things. Then there's only one way to him. But bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Uh, God is generous and abundant in his grace. So yes, there's one way to be saved. But God is willing to give it to anyone who would call upon him by faith. I, I've heard people say sometimes... You know, I, I can't believe that God would only give us one way to be saved. <laughs> only one way to be saved. As if God was obligated to even give us that one way. <laughs> Imagine you're trapped in a fire in a house, and this brave firefighter breaks away into the room with her axe. And she opens up the way and says, here's the way out. And you say, no, 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 there needs to be more than one way. I'm not leaving the house until you make more than one way out of this house. That's not fair that you only gave us one way out of the fiery building. You would say, you're crazy, right? God abundantly bestows his riches of grace by offering anyone and everyone to believe in him. As he says in verse 13, quoting from Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, 
not only are we to believe this, we're to confess it, which also would speak to its witness. I love about the, one thing I love about the Christian faith is the way that it levels the ground. It levels the ground. All people are made in the image of God. And if all people are made in the image of God, first of all, all people, all human beings are made in the image of God, which makes us different than animals. Animals are wonderful. I'm a big animal lover, take care of animals, but human beings are different. But all people are made in the image of God. All races, all ethnicities. That Down syndrome kid in the womb is made in the image of God. That 90-year-old woman who has dementia in our local nursing home is made in the image of God. That poor person, that rich person, all those different personalities, that person who's been struggling with mental illness their entire life, that person on their deathbed for cancer, with cancer is made in the image of God and valuable in his sight. We don't get to decide who is a more valuable person than another. It levels the ground. But more than that, all people are sinful. I'm sinful. You're sinful. We may have different sins. We probably do, right? But nobody is perfect, and that levels the ground. You might want to look with judgment upon someone else and say, well, they're more of a sinner than I am. But the truth of the matter is, we're all sinners. Maybe someone's sins are more open and outward, gluttony or gossip or alcoholism. Maybe your sins, my sins, are more secretive and hidden, pride and arrogance and envy. The truth of the matter is we're all sinners and therefore cut off from God and in need of grace. And then the other equalizer is this. The gospel goes out to all people, anyone and everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Friends, we as Christians are called to do the work of evangelism, which means we're called to share this message with others. Let them know that God is now welcoming sinners to himself, that he is pouring out the riches of his grace upon anyone and everyone who would believe in him. Uh, You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of evangelism. It's not my job to do the work of evangelism. Uh, That's not true. It's the work of every Christian. Read the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all the nations. And people say, well, that wasn't referring to me. That's only referring to maybe the disciples, But the Great Commission ends with, for I am with you always to the end of the age. So if you want the promise of the ending of the Great Commission, that Jesus is with you to the end of the age, you need to take the first part as well, which is a command to all of us to go make disciples. Some are gifted uniquely when it comes to evangelism. I love those people. I wish I was one of those people sometimes. And they're a great inspiration for all of us. But all of us are called to share the good news. All of us are called to support missions. Not everyone's called to go to the mission field. Some are called to go short-term, some long-term. All of us are called to do what we can to financially support. All of us are called to pray. All of us are called to do what we can to help encourage those who are serving on the mission field around the world. All of us are called to invite others to church as God gives opportunity. You know, people don't typically just show up to church, right? Usually there's some reason. They've moved into an area and they're looking for a church. Or maybe something's going on in their life. They're hitting a spiritual low point and they know they have a need and they want to find a church. But you know what the most common reason why someone comes to a church is? Because someone invited them. (laughs) That's why. So, friends, be willing to just say to someone, hey, 
someone who's looking for a church, I'm not here to steal people from other churches, but someone who's looking for a church, is open to come to church, be willing to encourage them and to invite them. That's part of our confession is our willingness to let other people know that we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to let them know that the gift of salvation is now open to all who would come. Salvation comes by believing and confessing Jesus is Lord. As I said, so simple, a five-year-old can understand it. In fact, many five-year-olds do. It's one of the reasons we, one of the reasons we have our Kid Town ministry. We want to just let our kids know that God loves them. He loves them enough to provide a Savior, that we as Christians care about them, that God in heaven has them in mind when he offers the riches of his grace. Yes, in one sense, there is the righteousness of law, which we'll never achieve, but there is, in God's mercy and grace, a righteousness that comes by faith. When we get to glory, there will be only one type of Christian there. That's it. It'll be a diverse place, don't get me wrong. People from every tongue and tribe and nation. But there will only be those who confess, who believe and confess Jesus as Lord. George Whitfield tells the story of his good friend John Wesley. And uh, Wesley was, um, him, and, him and Wesley disagreed on a lot of things, but he loved and he cherished Wesley's friendship. But he tells the story. This is the 1700s. John Wesley tells of a dream he had. So this is a, just a dream. This is not a... He was ushered in this dream to the gates of hell. And there Wesley asked... Are there any Presbyterians here? <laughs> and the answer was yes. Then he asked, Are there any Baptists here? Yes. Are there any Episcopalians in hell? Any Methodists? And the answer was yes each time. In the dream, Wesley was distressed. But then he was ushered to the gates of heaven and he said the same question Are there any Presbyterians here? And he heard the answer no. Are there any Baptists here? Are there any Episcopalians here? Are there any Methodists here? No, no, no. To this, Wesley asked, who then is inside? And the answer came back, there are only Christians here. Would you pray with me? Well, our great and our gracious Father, We love you. We thank you. We praise you for the gospel, the good news of Christ. Lord, we could never gain a right standing before our creator. Not if we tried again and again and again. But instead, you brought the gospel to us. The Lord Jesus has done the work in our place. And we are called to simply believe it and confess him as Lord. And to all those who are here who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we say, Jesus is Lord. For some here who maybe don't know the Lord Jesus yet, just, again, so thankful, grateful that they would be gathered with us here on a Sunday morning. No judgment on them at all, but help them as they think through, consider what it means to try to pursue righteousness. How, how, do we, how are we doing 
as human beings with the golden rule? (laughs) Have we done a good job with this world? Or are we in desperate need of a rescuer and a redeemer? And you have provided that in Christ. So thank you, Father. Help us to be filled with a sense of deep gratitude and filled with the Christian hope that the day is coming, Lord, when all those who confess Jesus as Lord will be gathered together with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.